so it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, to our fourth uh, NeuroEngles lecture, um, Professor Wayne Hall. Um, the previous lecturers have been uh, Steve Hyman, the Provost of Harvard, George Moll from Rio de Janeiro, and, and Molly Crockett. And Wayne is a very prominent figure in ethics. He has a Centre for Neuroethics uh, at the University of Queensland, and he's an Australian Fellow of the highest uh, academic award course uh, funding scheme you can get in Australia. Uh, so it's a great pleasure to welcome Wayne tonight. He's going to talk on addiction neuroethics. He is uh, kind of one of the world's experts, I think, on, in that field, so I'm looking forward to this talk. So we'll have roughly, you know, up to one hour and half an hour of questions. We'd have to be up to seven Okay, thanks for the introduction, Julian. Uh, just to acknowledge, the work I'll be talking about is, is work done jointly with Adrian Carter and Coral Gardner. Uh, Adrian probably more with the first half of the talk and Coral with the second, as I'll make clear as we go through. So I'm going to say a bit about what we mean by addiction neuroscience, the sorts of claims that have been made for the, the future benefits of this sort of research, particularly around improved treatment and prevention of addiction and uh, reduction of stigma and more humane treatment, which are, are very, as we'll see, are, are potent motivations for the, the advocacy of the view that addiction should be thought of as a, a brain disease. I won't talk in detail about uh, some of the possible policy uses. I've given talks on other occasions on deep brain stimulation for addiction. In fact, yesterday there were students here. And there's been a renewed interest, as I'll briefly talk about, in coerced addiction treatment for people's own good. But what I want to talk primarily about is a, is a detailed analysis of work that we've done over, I guess, the last 10 years on biotechnology and the future of tobacco control and the biotechnologies that people have been most interested in have been predictive genetics, pharmacogenetics and uh, new uh, drug treatments based on addiction neuroscience research. So the promise of addiction neurobiology is, is really primarily a scientific one that if the, the sort of research, and I'll describe the type of research done in a moment, work done on the neurobiological basis of uh, drug effects and drug addiction and the genetic vulnerability to develop those disorders will uh, enable us to better understand the biological basis of uh, addiction vulnerability, uh, better understand the mechanisms in the brain on which drugs act, understand some of the underlying brain mechanisms that explain well-known phenomena of addiction, such as development of tolerance and withdrawal, and uh, difficulty in remaining abstinent after people cease using. It also potentially will explain why some drugs are particularly neurotoxic, that is, why they uh, produce quite uh, severe damage to particular uh, <coughs> neuron systems and neurotransmitters. Uh, that's work done particularly on the stimulant drugs like methamphetamine. So the sort of research that's used primarily to argue for the idea that addiction is a neurobiological disease often summarised in the, the phrase that addiction is a chronic relapsing brain disease is the mantra of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, famously first put out in an article in Science by Alan Leshner, who was the then director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And the sort of work that research that they tend to heavily rely on has been one, animal models of addictive behaviour. Uh, animals can be trained to self-administer various drugs that are addictive in humans, uh, with some exceptions. It's a bit harder to get animals to drink alcohol, but it's possible to selectively breed them to do that. And apparently they quite like beer, at least Australian rats do, but uh, it's very easy to get rats to self-administer opiates, uh, cocaine, methamphetamine, particularly the stimulants. 
been difficult to get them to self-administer drugs like cannabis, but for a lot of cases, drugs that we know are addictive in humans, animals will self-administer at very high frequency. And animals have been used to dissect the neural architecture of uh, brain systems on which these drugs of dependence act. And uh, a key uh, centre of that's a so-called reward centre in the mesolimbic dopaminergic nervous system, the nucleus accumbens, sort of the, the pleasure spot, so-called, which on which a lot of these drugs act, either directly or indirectly. Now, over about the last 10 years, Nora Volko, who's now the, the current head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, has been uh, doing a lot of work, human neuroimaging studies, which have been providing supportive evidence for the idea that the sorts of mechanisms that have been delineated in animal studies are also at work in the brains of addicted humans. So they've looked at uh, using uh, functional neuro uh, magnetic resonance imagery and PET scanning, positron emission tomography, to locate the sites in the brain on which drugs of dependence act. And they've also been doing studies of so-called addicted brains, showing uh, changes in human brain circuits that are analogous to changes observed in animal models, particularly in uh, people with more severe stimulant types of drug problems. And that a lot of these changes in brain function persist beyond the period when people become and remain abstinent. So the argument is these are consequences of chronic drug use and that the brain disease is a, a conditional state that arises when people chronically abuse these substances and brings about these changes which makes it hard for human beings to desist from using these drugs. There's also a longer tradition of genetic research on vulnerability to human addiction. A lot of uh, studies, uh, adoption studies, particularly for alcohol, and twin studies uh, for most common forms of addiction, uh, alcohol, tobacco, uh, cannabis, uh, harder to study the rarer forms of addiction using that method, such as heroin and cocaine. Uh, and there's also work on gambling. Uh, fairly substantial heritability. Uh, some cynics say every form of human behaviour has a heritability of about 50%, and that's true of most of the common behavioural disorders, including addiction. The heritability tends to be a bit higher if you're looking at more persistent drug use, and the heritability of initiation of drug use seems to be a bit lower. And there are some alleles that is particular uh, variants of uh, common genes that have been found to protect, particularly in the case of alcohol dependence, and some that have been suggested increase the liability to develop addiction if people use uh, commonly addictive drugs. Of course, there's a lot of older evidence, uh, which is, goes back 100 years, of people who have been involved in treating uh, more severe forms of drug and alcohol dependence that ends up being treated in specialist addiction treatment services. And a very influential article by McClellan and colleagues from Philadelphia back in the early 2000s in the Journal of the American Medical Association drew very strong analogies between the sorts of outcomes of the treatment of addiction and the outcomes of the treatment of chronic diseases like asthma and diabetes. They said it was much more like these chronic forms of uh, of disease than it was an infectious disease. So we should expect these disorders to be chronic, uh, recurrent, uh, with periods of remission and high, high rates of relapse to drug use. So there's a lot of clinical evidence on the natural history of treated addiction, which has been used to argue that there's something about people who use drugs in high doses over long periods of time that changes their brain function and behaviour in ways that makes it very difficult for them to desist. More recently, we've had a very interesting phenomenon observed in patients treated with Parkinson's disease with dopamine replacement therapy. 
this is particularly the dopamine agonist drugs, uh, which have become the mainstay for the treatment of this particular disorder. And there's pretty compelling evidence now from the epidemiology that around about one in six people treated with these drugs at high dose develop a variety of different forms of compulsive behaviour. The, the clearest evidence is in the case of compulsive gambling. People who haven't had a history of gambling or disorders before develop severe problems and end up gambling away their livelihood. Compulsive sexuality is, has been reported. Um, and a, a case described a, a meeting in, in London very recently at the King's College of an elderly pensioner visiting prostitutes four times a day spending most of his income on, on this overeating as well. It's also possible for people to develop addictive patterns of use of some of the drugs, particularly the shorter-acting levodopa, so that they begin to behave in ways that resemble the behaviour of people, street users of cocaine and methamphetamine. I can, I can go to that later if people are interested, but I think this is sort of one of those interesting incidental observations. It's an adverse drug effect for a common treatment, which neurologists are trying to remove, and there's a, an interesting opportunity there, I think, to study these disorders better. The claim that addiction is a, a brain disease, of course, has been met by uh, strong arguments from sceptics of the brain disease model, including a couple of people in this room, uh, and the sorts of evidence that is often cited there comes from exactly the sorts of uh, surveys that are often used to argue that addiction is a very serious, highly prevalent problem. And these surveys have been ones where large representative samples of the population have been interviewed about the symptoms of common forms of drug and alcohol dependence, and lifetime risk of these disorders is quite high. But the more, most interesting thing, which of course the sceptics draw attention to, is that most addicted people, the most people who report ever having had symptoms of addictive disorders don't have them at the time they're interviewed. And most of them have, uh, have remitted, that is they've recovered, uh, usually without any form of assistance. Of course, this is clearest in the case of cigarette smoking in countries like Australia, <coughs> we'll talk about later. There are, there are more ex-smokers now than there are, in fact, current smokers, and the great majority of them manage to quit without assistance. There's also longitudinal studies, most famously Lee Robbins' study of heroin users among American Vietnam veterans who were followed for three years after the service, showing that the great majority of the servicemen who had often used heroin quite heavily, not by injection primarily, usually by smoking in Vietnam, didn't continue to use the drug after they returned to the US, and those that did, the majority didn't develop dependence. The same is also true in longitudinal studies of adolescent drug users. If you look at adolescents who are heavy drug users, follow them into adulthood, uh, uh, mid-late mid 20s, the great majority discontinue their drug use although many of them have, would have qualified for a diagnosis of addiction or dependence if they'd been seen uh, earlier in their uh, drug use careers, as it were. So the, the, the point is the epidemiology, that the cessation is the norm, often the absence of treatment. This doesn't seem to fit the view that addiction is a chronic relapsing brain disease as has been advocated. And most interesting of all is that even people in treatment for common forms of drug dependence uh, fairly simple changes in, in contingencies, that is rewards. You reward people for producing clean urine samples, often has a su surprisingly positive effect on their drug use. So small in changes in those sorts of incentives can reduce drug use, and again, that doesn't seem to fit the picture that's being pushed, 
pretty much by NIDA that this is a chronic relapsing drug use, uh, pattern of drug use and people behave compulsively and are unable to control their drug use. Well, is it possible to reconcile those, what's often Robin Roon, the alcohol epidemiologist, talked about the same phenomenon in the alcohol area, the two worlds of alcoholism, that it, uh, addiction disorders seem to be very common in the population, yet only a minority of people ever end up being treated for them and the great majority recover. Well, very clearly what we're talking about is we're not talking about uh, a categorical illness here, we're talking about disorders that vary in uh, severity, that the great majority of people who get into difficulty with alcohol or other drugs have mild or moderate disorders and it may well be, as a lot of people argue, that the criteria that are used in the diagnostic and statistical manuals set the bar way too low and that we're over including a lot of people who don't have uh, addiction we're counting as addicted. And the great majority of these disorders do remit the, the sovereign remedies of marriages, mortgages and children. They're the things that tend to slow people down and particularly in males who desist from using drugs, uh, although they can often cause themselves and others quite a bit of harm before they uh, do that. Chronic addictive disorders, particularly those that bring people into some form of formal contact with the treatment system or the prison system, we know a lot about their characteristics. They typically have a Y chromosome, it's sort of one of the strongest predictors, it's often been joked on the strongest genetic predictors of any behaviour is a Y chromosome rather than a particular genotype. A uh, huge, huge difference in prevalence of disorders, largely because males are more likely to use drugs, more likely to initiate early, more likely to get involved in patterns of heavy use, particularly with other drug-using peers. They often have a lot less going on in their lives. They're poorly educated, often don't have lots of relationships. Their life choices are much more restricted. So that's a common pattern, particularly in the juvenile justice system and they often graduate to the prison system and can often be very persistent in their, their patterns of behaviour. The other pattern is, has been described as self-medication of the symptoms of anxiety and depressive disorders, uh, which is another route, probably not quite as common as the former, as a way into a chronic pattern of uh, drug use that begins to display these characteristics. And we know a lot about who it is that seeks treatment. As a rough rule of thumb, probably around about 10% of people who ever meet criteria for dependence in population surveys end up in treatment services. And they typically end up there in their early 30s uh, because they've failed to quit uh, unassisted or they've been coerced into treatment by partners, families and courts. And people who fit those criteria who've been followed up often have incredibly chronic and relapsing disorders particularly for heroin dependence. 35-year follow-ups of, of heroin-addicted people in the US and other places, their chances of becoming abstinent are, are about the same per annum as their chance of dying, about 1%. And over 35 years, you end up with uh, 20 to 30% of them dead from typically drug-related causes, uh, about the same sort of quantity, uh, a number who've managed to disengage, and a substantial minority, often around a third, continuing to use... Uh, their drug of dependence. So there's no doubt that in that subset of people who are treated, these are chronic relapsing uh, patterns of behaviour, whether we call them diseases or disorders. So for the moment, uh, indulge me, let's assume for the purpose of the argument that it might be useful to think of these more severe forms of addiction as chronic relapsing brain diseases. What are the potential uh, Pay, uh, sort of payoffs of doing that, and sort of Charles Sanders' purse terms, what's the cash value? 
of addiction as a brain disease model in terms of how we might go about responding to it. Well, the benefits that are, are most often uh, predicted by those who support this, uh, and this is where most of the research investment has gone, is into more effective biologically based treatments of addiction, particularly drugs that might target neural mechanisms, and there's, there's typically tends to be the sort of drug of the moment, uh, decyclosirin, which is uh, there's a lot of excitement about because it might modify memories, uh, uh, the memory basis for chronic forms of addiction and make it easier for people to, to desist. There's also a lot of interest in better methods of helping people avoid relapse, the use of drug vaccines, and I'll talk about nicotine vaccines in a moment. Sustained release implantable forms of antagonist drugs that block the effects, particularly of opiates and a lot of hope uh, in better treatment matching using pharmacogenetics, genetic information to match people to treatment. And high-risk approaches to preventing addiction. The great hope is if we can identify people early who are at high risk of addiction, we can intervene in some way to reduce the likelihood that they'll become addicted if they use drugs. The challenges in realising these positives are fairly well known to you. The very long lead times between developing uh, new promising drugs and actually getting them into practice. Uh, there are very few that treatments so far that have, have managed to make it through the pharma pipeline uh, into treatment for addiction. There's probably about four or five uh, that have for alcohol, uh, nicotine and opiates. There's not an overwhelming enthusiasm amongst the pharmaceutical industry to get involved in developing drugs for addiction. Uh, largely because a lot, a lot of it has to do with the clientele not being in a position to afford the, to pay high costs for drugs uh, and uh, governments not being that interested in funding uh, addiction treatments until reasonably recently. There's a lot of concern. I, I won't go into these other uh, downsides, but certainly we see in the addiction areas, as with a lot of other uh, chronic conditions, that there's a lot of desperation out there and people are prepared to entertain and try heroic remedies of, of doubtful use um, and uh, one of those has been uh, neurosurgery for heroin addiction in China and there's been a variety of others in the addiction field is littered with examples of uh, enthusiastic treatment typically that involves interventions that uh, haven't held up. I won't talk about the concerns that have been expressed by a lot of social scientists about how acceptance of a brain disease model might affect the self-thought, how, how addicted people see themselves, how they think about their capacity to quit and the extent to which it might encourage us to think about increased resort to coercing people into treatment. The potential policy positives, and these were emphasised by Alan Leshner in his influential article, was the hope that acceptance, broader social acceptance of the idea that addiction was a brain disease would reduce, particularly in the US, the very punitive social policies adopted towards addiction reduced the amount of stigma and discrimination against addicted individuals and reduced the number of people with addiction problems who ended up in the prison system. And the hope was that it would also lead to more public funding for addiction treatment and health insurance coverage of addiction treatment as a standard part of medical treatment. And I've only just recently learned it's not something that's been trumpeted by the Obama administration, but they've managed to do that. Obamacare includes standard forms of treatment for addiction as part of the standard package that would be covered if Obama's re-elected and the uh, legislation survives challenge in the uh, Supreme Court. But it is 
that has gotten into the legislation that's, that's currently in train in the US. And the current US drug czar, who's a retired police officer, is, is also inclined to say that addiction is a chronic brain disease and that we should be treating uh, people with this disorder rather than imprisoning them. So there has been, rather belatedly, under the Obama administration, some uh, sort of uptake of these sorts of ideas, which certainly wasn't true under either the Clinton administration or, or either of the Bushes. So potential policy downsides, and that's one I want to focus on for the rest of this talk, and I want to focus on the red one at the bottom, the policy simplifications. Uh, I, I can certainly talk to uh, people who are interested afterwards about uh, neurosurgery and deep brain stimulation, which are now being uh, advocated and discussed as treatments for addiction, and the renewed interest in paternalistically motivated uh, coerced treatment for addiction, uh, which is making a bit of a comeback at the moment. But I want to focus on the policy simplifications. And these are the sorts of often unconscious ways of thinking that people in, engage in and thinking, well, if addiction is a brain disease, then we really need to focus on either people who currently have these addictions and treat them, or preferably we need to identify people at high risk of developing these problems and intervene early. And as, as I'll argue, the, the downsides of this particular approach, particularly when it's motivated by the brain disease model, is an overemphasis on biology as a cause and on biology as, as an approach to treatment, to the neglect of uh, what I'll describe in a moment as population-based strategies and regulation. And to plug this, these are the books. Uh, Adrian Carter and I uh, published one on the right-hand side just earlier this year, and the other's an edited collection with Judy Illis, uh, which covers a lot of the territory that I won't be discussing today. What I want to talk about is, is work that uh, Coral Gartner in particular and I have been doing over almost the last 10 years now in collaboration with a variety of other colleagues who are epidemiologists, health economists uh, in at the School of Population Health and Simon Chapman who's a leading tobacco control advocate in, in, in Australia. And what we've been asking is, is the question, uh, how can we go about reducing tobacco-related harm in Australia, and we've explored what I'll describe as high-tech, low-tech and no-tech approaches to doing that. Um, so the first point, there's a lot of good news in this, this slide. This is a sort of trends in smoking prevalence in Australian men and women over the last 70-odd uh, years, and there has been spectacular success, particularly amongst men, in the reduction of smoking prevalence. For nearly 75% of Australian men in 1945 were smokers, uh, down under 20% now. In fact, the number of daily smokers in Australia now is under 16%. Uh, there's another couple of percent of people who smoke less frequently than that, but uh, that's come down, and particularly steeply in the last uh, decade or so. We've got a pretty good idea of why. Uh, sort of economics 101, you make a commodity more expensive, people consume less of it, and increasing tobacco taxes has probably been the most effective way of reducing smoking prevalence, and it's uh, that's happened in all countries that have tried it. There's also good evidence the benefits of banning advertising cigarettes and their promotion. But probably the other, the other biggest uh, factor has been restrictions on where people can smoke, particularly in public areas and workplaces. Uh, and that's come into effect particularly in the 1990s when the rate of decline has been pretty steep. Quit lines and quit media campaigns do play a role. They're obviously a much smaller part of the story than the big picture items, increasing price and reducing availability and, and uh, promotion. 
And we know from economic modelling uh, that Theo Voss and colleagues have done that the most cost-effective policies in reducing smoking prevalence uh, in countries like Australia and the UK and, and Europe have been in that order, taxation, advertising bans and smoking bans in workplaces <coughs> and public places. So the question people are asking now is we've got smoking prevalence down to the mid-teens. How low can we, we get it? Uh, can we get it under 5%? Uh, so it, it has a prevalence which is getting down around that of the uh, less commonly used illicit drugs like uh, amphetamine, cocaine, heroin. And the concern has been expressed that the smokers that remain will continue to smoke under a social setting where there's massive stigmatisation and discouragement of smoking might well be different from the smokers who, by and large, the better educated who've been the ones more likely to stop and the ones less likely to start. So we see in most developed countries, particularly here in the UK, as smoking prevalence has gone down, you get much higher proportion of smokers who come from lower socioeconomic status backgrounds, less well educated uh, and more likely to have comorbid, particularly mental disorders, things like depression, anxiety and also risk exempting beliefs, that is they're more likely to believe yes, yes, smoking causes all these diseases but that's, uh, that affects other people, I'm, I'm exempt because my grandmother smoked until she was 80, it didn't affect her and so I'm, I'm okay. It's uncertain and it's debated about the extent to which those who continue to smoke are more or less nicotine dependent than people who've quit. Uh, the interesting thing is because of the increased smoking restrictions, there's uh, less people who do smoke, smoke a lot less on average now than used to be the case. But there certainly are the more disadvantaged smokers who tend to smoke fairly heavily. We don't have a lot to offer people who are heavy smokers in assisting to quit. We do have treatments that roughly double, or in the case of the newer drugs like varenicline, roughly treble the chances of quitting, but given that the chances of unaided quitting are of sort of the order of 2 or 3%, you sort of often will get 10 to 20% as the, the best outcome for some of these drug treatments. And we continue to see new smokers recruited, uh, albeit at a lower level in the population, but particularly amongst lower SES groups. And the tobacco industry continues to uh, run campaigns. I mean, one of its its particular arguments is saying, well, the tobacco problem solved. Everybody who continues to smoke knows what they're up for. It's a fully informed adult choice. We've come clean on the health effects of this habit. So the problem is solved. Just let people get on with it if they want to smoke. And there's been some internet viral marketing particularly directed at younger people. So how can we get the smoking prevalence under 5%, which is what people are talking about at the moment? Well, I'll talk a bit about the high-tech approaches, which have primarily been motivated by a lot of the thinking underlying the sort of neurobiology of addiction. And I'll talk about a controversial low-tech approach, tobacco harm reduction, uh, encouraging people to s switch from smoking tobacco to using it in other ways that's much less risky, particularly low nitrosamine smokeless tobacco. And e-cigarettes, electronic cigarettes, I know people saw there was a full... Hand a, a, a sort of insert in today's times advertising these particular products. So uh, I'll, I'll talk a bit about those. And then, of course, the, the brutal no-tech approach, which we just prohibit smoking, which is what uh, people are beginning to talk about in the US, and I'll, I'll talk about uh, that plus or minus harm reduction. So what are the high-tech approaches? Um, well, the simplest one is the idea we could identify susceptibility genes for nicotine dependence. We could uh, intervene early. Uh, either pre preventively, prevent people from becoming nicotine dependent or 
therapeutically using genetic information to optimise cessation so that we get uh, more people quitting more successfully. And the, the fourth possibility, which I'll talk about, nic preventive nicotine vaccination. It's a, a perennial topic that the media just love uh, and people continue to advocate. David Nutt was in The Guardian last week foreseeing the idea of vaccinating the whole population of adolescents against the effects of tobacco. Uh, so I want to, want to talk about that. The genetics of smoking, fairly quickly, as I mentioned, there's a fairly substantial heritability for smoking initiation and persistence, higher for persistence than initiation. There's been identification of some specific genes that influence nicotine metabolism, uh, levels of nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, which is where the nicotine acts in the brain, and uh, uh, gene uh, transporters that are implicated in the dopaminergic or reward system in the midbrain. The problem has been high heritability, but most of the genes that have been identified either haven't replicated or the ones that have have been very weakly predictive of increased risk. So relative risk to 1.06, 1.12, uh, which my colleagues in epidemiology dismisses decimal dust uh, in terms of risk factors for common disease. People don't get excited about anything with a relative risk under 2. Nicotine pharmacogenetics has been one. There's, in, in fact, a spin-off at this university that was marketing Nicotest uh, as a way for smokers to decide whether they'd do better with nicotine replacement therapy or the drug Zyban. Uh, that, that's been withdrawn from the market. The evidence base was always very poor, and the analyses of the cost effectiveness just said it was, was never going to be a, a, a test that would be funded. Nicotine vaccines are a much more interesting idea. They've been promising, uh, a very promising approach now for over 10 years that I'm aware of um, and it's a really cool idea in lots of ways because you've got animal models showing that you can raise antibodies against nicotine and you can basically prevent the nicotine molecule getting across the blood-brain barrier and producing the sort of jollies that people smoke cigarettes for and it abolishes self-administration of nicotine in rats and there's been five different pharmaceutical companies all fairly small that have been uh, trialling various uh, forms of vaccines against smoking. Primarily, I should emphasise for the intention of using these vaccines to help people quit and stay quit, not as a preventive intervention. But inevitably, you talk about a vaccine, people want to think about using it preventively. The results so far have been pretty disappointing. Uh, the main problem has been getting enough antibody and enough people to produce results that are superior to placebo. So this is one of the largest trials that was published by the, the NABI uh, company and they randomised uh, something over 300 patients to receive five injections over a period of a month and assessed abstinence at six months. And there was some suggestion of a superior outcome in the vaccine group but it wasn't statistically significant and the hope was that in the minority it was about a third of the people who were vaccinated who did have high antibody levels and in that group there was nearly 60% abstinence rate. But they've just finished a phase 3 trial with a, a souped up version of the vaccine in the hope that they could up that rate and the results have been very disappointing and in fact they've announced that they're no longer proceeding with the development of this particular product. That hasn't stopped people fantasising about nicotine vaccination so one of the things we've done is some modelling of uh, this particular approach. A lot of that, there has been quite a bit of discussion of this option in the bioethics literature. Um, primarily, 
around universal nicotine vaccination, that is where we vaccinate everybody in the hopes of uh, preventing smoking uptake in the same way as we've publicly funded vaccination against the human papillomavirus in Australia and, and many other developed countries. Or alternatively, we could think about indicated vaccination, that is we only vaccinate that subset of the population we think of as being at high risk, e.g. high uh, increased genetic risk. We could expect to see if a nicotine vaccine was ever approved, what I've described as off-label use, that is if parents ask their GP to vaccinate their kids. This is not likely to have much public health impact. It's likely to be the lowest risk uh, anxious parents who probably resort to this uh, sort of approach. So we've modelled uh, the first and second of these, these options. And the universal vaccinations I've mentioned, bioethicists have discussed the ethical issues, whether parents have the right to uh, uh, prevent their kids from smoking. I'm not going to get involved in that uh, debate. We're much more interested in whether it's feasible, how feasible is this as an option, and the argument being, as we'll see, that it's unlikely to ever happen because the, the regulatory standards required to get a vaccine up to years on young people are so much higher than would be the regulatory hurdles that would have to be leapt over to get a vaccine approved for smoking cessation. And as we'll see, the high cost of doing this on a large scale and its uncertain cost-effectiveness means that nobody's likely to fund it, either public or, or third-party private health insurer. And if there's no chance of making money from it, farmer aren't going to invest in doing the R&D. So we've done some modelling uh, using some of the results of the Phase 2 trials. This is work that's just been published online uh, in the journal Addiction, Coral Gartner, Jan Barendrick and myself. And we've modelled the impact of preventive vaccination of a cohort of young Australians, uh, varying the proportion who might be vaccinated, varying the cost of the vaccine through what we've described as low, medium and high ranges based on costs of current vaccines of similar sort. And we've also varied likely adherence, that is what proportion of people who initiate a vaccination schedule will in fact complete it, enough of it to get uh, immunity to be protected. And we've used the standard sort of metric that health economists do, incremental cost effectiveness, that is how much more effective is this likely to be than doing what we currently do, which is not to vaccinate kids, and uh, is the cost of achieving these sorts of incremental benefits uh, worth it? And we've looked at how it would compare with the costs of human papillomavirus vaccine and smoking cessation drugs. Is there a pointer? I don't think there is, I think. Uh, this is just uh, give you a bit of an idea of the cost in Australian dollars per smoker averted. What does it cost to prevent somebody taking up smoking by vaccinating the whole population? Well, it costs a lot. If we're talking about only 50% uptake, you're looking at 150 to 250,000. If you look at 100,000, uh, sorry, 100% uptake, you're still looking at 50,000 per smoker averted. Uh, and the sort of measures that that would be influential in uh, the committees that make these decisions in Australia is the cost uh, Australian dollar per daily averted disability adjusted life year averted and we typically fund drugs and medical interventions in Australia which uh, would produce, would cost around sort of 35 to 40,000 uh, per daily averted and none of these come close I and mean, this is a very optimistic scenario, that's where everybody who starts the schedule completes it uh, and this is a much more realistic uh, outcome. We know from the human papillomavirus that 
the uh, uptake and adherence is sort of more like 50% over uh, a course of three injections. So this doesn't look like being a, a plausible intervention. And in terms of the most optimistic scenario, the total cost of achieving a 14% reduction in smoking prevalence uh, would be somewhere between 1.7 and 2.8 billion Australian dollars. And that's a hell of a lot more than we're prepared, prepared to pay for human papillomavirus vaccination, to subsidise drugs for smoking cessation, or to fund quit campaigns. So this is not likely to be a, an approach that's very fruitful. Uh, high risk, screening for high risk and vaccinating. This is something we've looked at. Um, we have published an analysis of this. We looked at the literature identified the genes that were there at the time of our analysis, the most likely predictors of increased susceptibility to develop nicotine dependence. And we did simulation studies looking at how well they would perform as a group in predicting uh, likelihood of smoking. And we compared it to a pretty low-level prediction, namely how many of your parents smoked. And neither of them did a very good job, but knowing how many of your parents smoked did marginally better. And this is a sort of standard way of representing uh, the predictive performance of a screening test. The diagonal there is, is a coin toss. Uh, that's what you get if you toss a coin to make a decision at chance. Uh, the genetic polymorphisms did marginally better than chance, and knowing how many of your parents smoked did better again. This is not peculiar to uh, genetic prediction of disease risk for smoking. This has come through with a lot of similar studies of predicting disease risk for diseases like diabetes and asthma and heart disease as well. That a lot of the, the simpler phenotypic information that we collect does a better job of predicting disease risk than does knowing about uh, susceptibility alleles. We also beat this to death by... Uh, looking at well, what would the characteristics be required to produce a good screening test using genotypic information and the answer is down in this bottom right hand corner with relative risks of two or higher uh, 20 or more genes and we're typically looking as we saw with relative risks up in this sort of range and we'd probably be looking at hundreds of genes to have any prospect of using genetic information to predict disease risk and again this is a conclusion that's been come to more recently and more generally in using genetic information to predict disease risk. This is when we started looking at lower technology options. Because often we think of high-tech solutions to problems and forget that there may well have been simpler approaches uh, that have been around. And in fact, if you look at the history of smoking, there was a very long period of time when people didn't smoke tobacco at all. That the primary route of administration was either nasal snuff or chewing tobacco and uh, as we'll see the health risks of those particular methods of nicotine delivery are trivial by comparison with the health risks of continuing to smoke tobacco cigarettes. So the argument, the, the, the terminology that's been used for this approach has been called tobacco harm reduction, uh, encouraging people who are smokers who are either unable or unwilling to quit to switch from smoking tobacco to using uh, tobacco harm reduction products and the, the, the sort of the least harmful being nicotine replacements such as gum, patches and inhalers. Uh, the next least harmful smokeless tobacco products such as snuff and chewing tobacco. And the hot one at the moment which we in, in much less position uh, to evaluate the harm of is the electronic delivery system such as the e-cigarette. 
And it's worth, this is data from Alan Brandt's book on cigarette century. The cigarette's been around for about 100 years and it really only captured the market in countries like the US and other parts of the developed world really in about the first third of the last century. Until that point, there'd been a hell of a lot of chewing tobacco or the use of pipes or cigars rather than smoking tobacco cigarettes. And it really was the advent of the cigarette and its uptake on a large scale that produced the epidemic of tobacco-related diseases. So the argument is we should think about going back in time and encouraging people to use less harmful ways of uh, getting their nicotine dose, uh, preferably ones that don't involve smoking. So these are the most promising options. The pharmaceutical nicotine has been around for a long time, but the paradox is that it's been deliberately engineered not to be very effective for maintenance purposes. It's primarily designed to help people quit, so it delivers low dose in ways that don't resemble the way nicotine is delivered by cigarettes. And so it's primarily not been very attractive for smokers to use it as a long-term alternative to smoking. Um, the e-cigarette potentially is, is a much more attractive form because it mimics more closely the experience of smoking. Uh, and, and, of course, that's why people are alarmed at the advocacy of it. But the experience that most people have emphasised in advocating for this has been the experience in Sweden, where over the last uh, 30 or 40 years uh, there's been a big decline in smoking prevalence amongst Swedish men. Uh, most of them have given up smoking and a substantial number who continue to use tobacco products use snus or oral snuff rather than uh, smoking tobacco. And there's no doubt at all from large-scale epidemiological studies of the Swedish experience that this very, very substantially reduces the harms that individual smokers run. The best guess is an 80 to 90% reduction in health adverse health consequences of using this product rather than smoking cigarettes because you obviously eliminate the respiratory risks, um, lung cancer and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. There, there's a lower risk of oral cancer, which is a risk of more traditional chewed tobacco products because the tobacco has been treated. Typically, it's been uh, uh, pasteurised, in fact, cooked in, in hot steam, and that kills bacteria that produce nitrosamines, which are the major carcinogen. There's some argument about how much of the cardiovascular disease risks remain, but uh, they're a lot lower, certainly, than continuing to smoke. And the best guess is that if all current smokers and only current smokers switched to the SNOS product, we'd have a 90% reduction in tobacco-related disease with huge economic savings to the community and large risk reductions for smokers. And it's hard to think of many public health interventions that would produce uh, such a large reduction in risk, uh, which, of course, is not permissible in most of the European Union or Australia. Uh, it is allowed in the US and Canada. So the Swedish product is called SNOS. Uh, it's in fact now used half of all Swedish uh, male tobacco users use snus rather than smoke. And the tobacco's prevalence of tobacco smoking in Swedish men is about 15%. And it's sort of a natural experiment, as it were, because it's primarily men who've taken it up, and it's Swedish men who've shown the biggest drop in lung cancer rate. There's been much less of a drop in, in women who've continued to smoke. Um, we've done some modelling. Uh, looking at the impact of switching from uh, snus or switching to snus rather than quitting cigarette smoking at different ages and the difference in, in healthy adjusted life expectancy that is 
number of healthy years of life lived after that particular age is surprisingly small, somewhere between uh, 0.1 and 0.4 years that you'd lose uh, if you switch to snooze rather than quit smoking. And if you look at it over the lifespan, unsurprisingly, you get more of a gain if you quit earlier, but the difference between quitting and using snooze in men and women is surprisingly small. And uh, so we've written papers advocating the use of uh, snooze as a tobacco harm reduction measure and this has been strongly resisted in the tobacco control community in most countries, less so in Britain than US, Canada and Australia. And the sorts of objections to uh, this particular thing I'll, I'll briefly go through because I think these are interesting objections. And the primary one is for people uh, who basically argue well, they don't care if smokeless tobacco is harmless, it's addictive and that's wrong and we should attempt to eliminate all tobacco use. And uh, it's not clear how they expect that we're going to do that other than prohibition, which is one of the reasons we'll see <coughs> later that prohibition of smoked tobacco products is increasingly advocated by people of this particular persuasion. There's also uh, evidence or doubts about the quality of the Swedish evidence uh, about the health benefits of using snooze. Um, and the arguments often put that it's only ecological data, it's only observational evidence, to which the reply is it's precisely the sort of evidence we have for believing that cigarette smoking causes most of the diseases that we believe it causes. And it's also the, exactly the same sort of evidence we have for believing that tobacco control policies work. So it's, I, I don't think that's a particularly compelling argument. The other big concern is what effect this might have on uh, cessation. Will it deter existing smokers from quitting? Would it lead to increased uptake of smokeless tobacco, which might produce offsetting uh, benefit? Sorry, offset the benefits of people quitting or switching to snooze by increasing tobacco use in the population? Well, the answer there is pretty unlikely because you're going to have to have a lot more people using snooze to offset the benefits of getting one smoker to switch. And that's, that's in the, the Gardner and uh, old, old paper. <coughs> the big uncertainty is how many smokers will be interested in using these sorts of products, uh, how many will continue to smoke if they do use snooze, and will it be, become a gateway into smoking for younger people. And the evidence on that's mixed. There's little evidence of it happening in Sweden. There's much more mixed evidence in the USA. Also concerns about exportability of the Swedish experience. They say, that's Sweden, they're odd. Uh, no one else would be interested in doing this. The evidence is, is suggesting that's not the case. We're seeing spread mostly at the moment in, elsewhere into Scandinavia and we've seen some uptake uh, in other places. And this seems a curious objection because people are saying, well, no one will use it, but we don't want to even give them the opportunity to try so we'd rather ban it. And they're really making two claims that I think are jointly pretty implausible. One, that smokers won't be interested in using the product, the only people who will will be non-smokers and lots of them will become smokers. That's the only circumstance or scenario under which this sort of experiment would, would produce more harm than, than good and that seems pretty unlikely on the Swedish experience. The big bottom line for a lot of people is we have to make deals with the tobacco industry, we have to allow the tobacco industry to continue to produce tobacco products, albeit non-smoked ones. And for a lot of people in the tobacco control community, the unstated ambition is to eliminate tobacco industry along with, with smoked tobacco. 
And the tobacco industry in, in well, uh, in, in their typical fashion, are behaving in ways that encourage people to be suspicious because in the US they're marketing Marlboro Snooze, Camel Snooze, <coughs> they're branding a lot of these products with the same brands as smoked tobacco and promoting dual use, that is encouraging people to use them when they can't smoke and con to continue to smoke when they can. But I, I think we've suggested a variety of ways in which those concerns could be addressed by regulation and I think that's the more appropriate way to go rather than uh, refusing to allow this option. So we come to the last no-tech option, tobacco prohibition, and the reason for considering tobacco prohibition is fairly simple. This is a lovely cartoon that came out in about 2001 when the US Supreme Court rejected the Food and Drug Administration's proposal <coughs> to regulate cigarettes, the argument being you couldn't regulate cigarettes because they're so harmful and dangerous, the only way to make them safe is to ban them. If you ban them, you can't regulate them, and you're not allowed to ban them because that's not part of the FDA. Uh, uh, sort of charter, so you're not allowed to regulate them. That was pretty much the reasoning of the US Supreme Court at the time. The Congress has since, in fact, legislated to give the FDA the authority to regulate tobacco products, and the debate now is whether we should attempt to regulate any tobacco products or we just should attempt to drive them out of existence. And this is <coughs> the sort of proposal that's, that's being floated by uh, the National Academy of Science in the US leading tobacco control advocates in the US and uh, more recently by the historian Robert Proctor who's written a very good history of tobacco use in the US. And it would be feasible to do it. You wouldn't effect effectively prohibit smoked tobacco, you just regulate tobacco in ways that made it so unattractive that people wouldn't want to smoke it. And you do that very simply by progressively reducing the nicotine content to zero over 10 to 15 years. Uh, regulate tobacco so that the tobacco smoke is acrid and acidic and not easily inhaled um, and uh, you potentially could set tradable caps, you allow people to produce smoked tobacco but progressively smaller amounts to encourage them to make the shift to production of uh, smokeless uh, tobacco products. Minor concerns about the likely opposition that tobacco industry might not be too happy with this nor might smokers or plenty of other people concerned about individual liberty and black market costs, but ignore that for the moment and assume that the fantasy would could come true. What might happen if we were to prohibit uh, all smoked tobacco products? Well, we'd have a situation pretty much like what we have with cannabis now. You know, cannabis would be a good model for what might happen under uh, tobacco prohibition. We'd have, even at best case, 5 to 10% of adults who are still daily smokers uh, and that would be a fairly substantial number of people who might be interested in purchasing black market tobacco. We already see some smuggling of tobacco products and illicit production of tobacco in Australia in response to increased taxes. Uh, so a prohibition on it would, would generate uh, almost certainly a larger and more profitable black market. And it would probably also amplify existing social inequalities in Smoking would make smoking even more a habit of the poorer, less well-off, and would probably mean that most of the illicit market would, would occur in poorer areas where these sorts of smokers lived. I think the alternative policy, I'm not a not proponent of prohibition of smoked tobacco, either de facto or de jure, but I think one of the things we should be thinking about doing is what uh, is a phrase that Mark Klein, an American drug policy analyst, has used grudging tolerance. 
That is, we tolerate the use of tobacco products, but we'd make it progressively harder for people to smoke unless they were really seriously wanted to. And that might involve the gradual reduction in the availability of tobacco, getting it out of convenience stores and supermarkets, and potentially only allowing it to be sold in licensed tobacco stores, much like we do with alcohol. And the proposal's been put, which is an interesting one. I've, I've heard, I haven't been able to confirm, that the Singapore government is considering it, raising the minimum legal smoking age to 21 on the grounds that very few people initiate tobacco smoking after the age of 20. So if you could reduce the access of younger people to tobacco, you might reduce rates of uptake. And at the same time that you do that, you could encourage existing users of tobacco products who wanted to continue to use nicotine to use less harmful forms, and that might involve making the less harmful forms more readily available, uh, uh, certainly initially in the same places that tobacco was sold, and as the Swedes did, reducing taxes on these products so that they're cheaper and more attractive to uh, existing smokers. I won't go into this, we're running a bit short of time, but Coral Gartner and I have... Uh, written a paper just sort of explaining how that sort of model could be implemented as a series of stages, uh, you know, obviously by building public support and, and discussion. So just to sort of summarise what I've argued, that high-tech tobacco policy futures, I think, are, are not likely to be very useful in, in having a big impact on smoking prevalence. It will be important to provide more effective forms of treatment for people who find it difficult to quit, but in terms of the sort of bang for the buck, that's not likely to have a huge impact on smoking prevalence. And certainly on the current data, vaccines and pharmacogenomics don't look too promising, although you couldn't rule out the possibility that it, they might prove useful. Preventive vaccination, I think, is something we should be uh, forgetting about. It's important to get that off the table, as, as sexy and appealing an, an approach it might be. The evidence is very clear that policies which dis discourage adult smoking are very, very effective in reducing youth uptake. That we've had big, steep declines in uptake of smoking in young Australians, which have paralleled uh, the declines in smoking prevalence in older adults that have been brought about by increasing taxation, banning smoking and restrictions on sales. Low-tech tobacco policy futures, I think, is an important one that we really need to have a serious debate about. And the major problems at the moment uh, the fact that there's strong opposition to this from within the tobacco control and public health community. And the burden of persuasion is, is because these products have already been prohibited in most developed countries and in, in the EU, it's an EU regulation, it's harder to overturn a prohibition like that. And uh, there's been enormous opposition to even discussing it. Uh, it's one of the few occasions when I've been on the uh, sort of experienced end of uh, people lobbying medical journals to prevent publications of articles advocating for this. So it's something people feel fairly deeply about in the tobacco control community. Regulatory futures. Um, I don't think the prohibition's a serious possibility. I think we'd be better off thinking about less coercive uh, approaches, that, that ones that took smokers along with it and attempted to encourage people who wanted to continue to use nicotine products to use much less harmful forms of them. So how does this all relate back to what I talked about earlier with addiction as brain disease? Well, the smoking case is not a, a great uh, case study to support the idea that it's useful to think about addiction as a brain disease because most of the decline that we've seen in smoking prevalence has occurred with policies that don't really 
see addiction as, as a central issue, things like taxation, advertising and smoking bans, that most of the assistance to cessation uh, helps smokers quit is something that's important and that if there is any payoff from addiction neurobiology, that's where it's likely to be. And it's important that we do provide assistance to people who are unable to quit, but it's not likely to be uh, a major part of the reason why it declines. We could see addiction as being part of the rationale for tobacco harm reduction, and in fact some people do advocate a tobacco harm reduction on the grounds that there are some people who are unable to quit, and it's, it's much better for them to be using less harmful products uh, than otherwise, but of course you can justify tobacco harm reduction policies as a consumer choice, you don't have to buy uh, that argument. The addiction argument is increasingly being used by those who want to justify tobacco prohibition, saying this is a dangerous, addictive commodity that we should pro should prohibit in the way that we've prohibited other addictive commodities like heroin, cocaine and cannabis. I won't go into this in detail, but just to signal I'm not wanting to make the, the claim that this is applicable to all potential policy uses of uh, addiction neuroscience. I think there is a compelling case and very strong arguments to be made for similar arguments in the case of legally available addictive commodities. I've done that for alcohol. The Productivity Commission in Australia, which is a bunch of economists, has written a very good report advocating a very similar approach to reducing problem gambling. It's in the area of illegal drugs where you don't have the option of taxation and regulation, where policies are much more likely to focus on uh, treating or dealing with the addicted individual, and that's where a lot of the attention and focus of the uh, research in the US has gone into better treatments, particularly for people in the criminal justice system and uh, better forms of uh, biologically based uh, treatment for addicted persons. But that's a whole other talk, uh, <coughs> so I'll finish there to allow plenty of time for discussion and debate. So thanks very much for your attention. <laughs>